Correction. In Kiss Today Goodbye, I referred to Bobby's girlfriend as Diane, but I meant Claire. Prologue. The best part of my father's abrupt termination of our relationship after my parents' divorce was it allowed me to relax a little. I didn't have to worry about him betraying my trust any longer, and I could put the unresolved blowjob incident behind me, mostly. My relationship with my mother remained a mixed bag. I never knew what, or perhaps who, I was going to get when interacting with her. As she worked through the changes to her new life, our dynamic also changed. She'd go from bitter to hopeful, open to evasive, engaged to dismissive. I did my best to adapt, but mostly withdrew to protect myself from the shifting sands of her moods. For my sister, things were either right or wrong, black or white. As such, she was the most set in her ways. She'd cut the cord to our father after he'd tried to molest her. As a result of her resolve, she seemed the least impacted by his departure, and she had already distanced herself from the rest of the family while in middle school. My brother was lost, a casualty of their war. I felt pity for his desire that one day he'd have a functional relationship with his father, a man incapable of love. They fought bitterly through my brother's childhood, and as he entered adolescence, those fights became physical. My brother and I still had no access to the memories of our father's incest. What my brother had done to me in elementary school, combined with his ever-present and slowly escalating drug use and physically violent nature, left us no hope for a relationship. He felt no remorse, which gave us no place from which to try and repair our history. That kind of work requires both a willingness and ability to grow, and he had neither. For my part, I felt he had no redeeming qualities. He was manipulative, deceitful, arrogant, and every day more like our father. I may have had the ability, but I lacked the willingness. There was just no there, there. I had such disdain for my brother's behavior, and then for his drinking and drug use. Yet by the end of high school, I was drinking and had gotten drunk. I'd also been introduced to pot, thanks to my algebra teacher. I'd associated my brother's violent behavior with his drug and alcohol use for so long, I assumed that would be my fate if I were to drink or smoke pot. Whereas he was using and dealing by 8th grade, I held out till my senior year to experiment with pot and alcohol because I was sure I'd be equally violent. As it turned out, I was a silly and harmless drunk, and my brother was simply violent. My friendship with Dan was the most stable and equitable relationship I had as a teenager. The space we gave one another to be who we were, coupled with the fact that each of us enjoyed these people, created a sense of camaraderie I'd never known. He took an interest in all aspects of my life and was always there for me when I needed him, and I did the same in return. That may seem basic, but to me it was like water on a desert. My experience in 10th grade with Tony was simple sexual exploration. I had assigned a greater meeting at the time because of my history of abuse and deep desire to be loved. He was an asshole with his fat-shaming comment, but we remained friends until he graduated. Then, as is often the case, once we were no longer in one another's daily orbit, Our friendship faded, and we eventually lost touch with one another. My past at Dan was much more complicated. This was an era when being gay came with an automatic death sentence from AIDS. The messaging clearly established that if you were gay, then you were going to die of AIDS. There was no gray area, and no debate. Gay men were also vilified as pedophiles. I certainly didn't want to be that. It's worth noting that more than 95% of all pedophiles self-identify as heterosexual, like my father. That statistic has held for as long as that data has been collected, but I wouldn't come to learn this for many years. 
Brock Hudson had just died of AIDS the year before I made my pass at Dan. His outing and subsequent death both shocked and polarized the nation. By making a pass at Dan and confiding in him that I had been questioning my sexuality, I risked our friendship and being outed at a time when gay men across the country were being beaten, sometimes to death, out of fear and anger over AIDS. Dan would not have attacked me, but in general I was incredibly fortunate he was so level-headed in his response. It's been pointed out to me that given my history of abuse, it was unusual I was still able to recognize and honor other people's sexual boundaries, something for which I'm exceedingly grateful. I stopped when Laura asked me to stop in 8th grade, and I stopped when Dan asked me to stop in 12th. I yearned for physical intimacy with emotional affection. I hadn't kissed anyone since Diane in 9th grade. I hadn't had any sexual contact of any kind with anyone since Tony, and that was entirely one-sided. The way Dan acknowledged and even appreciated my past in his way was the best possible outcome for our friendship, which survived. He clearly had a healthy sense of his own sexuality and self-image to have handled my past with such maturity and insight. We're all just humans being human. I mentioned in the last episode the time I was investing in a version of myself that didn't exist. I made that remark unscripted as I was recording, and it's stuck with me. I spent so much time and energy trying to be someone and something society and my parents wanted me to be, rather than being allowed to explore and discover who I actually was. I was trying so hard not to be me. I was the only one of my siblings to go to all of their school dances, homecomings, and proms. I'd forgotten until I listened to the episode that I also went to a second senior prom at another school with a girl from work. Such was my commitment to being what everyone else wanted me to be. Anything but gay. My parents were great at building a brand for themselves for the world to see that had nothing to do with their authentic selves, and I was doing the same thing, creating a version of myself for the pleasure and acceptance of those around me. What I wouldn't give to have back the energy and time I invested in being that person that didn't exist. I can't help but believe my grades would have been better, and I would have been happier. I find as I talk about the painful parts of my history, and because I've done the work in therapy, I'm able to release a lot of things I've been holding on to. And in the void created by the letting go, other memories fill the space. As I listened back to my story of my math teacher's shameful treatment of me, I remembered the time my brother had had her class. He had come home from school crying hysterically and begging our parents to take him out of math class. I feel like I'm shackled in hell, he wailed. At the time, we all laughed at his anguish, which was cruel in its way, but such was our culture at home. I recently found myself feeling empathy for him on that particular front. Her class truly was hell, of a sort. I find myself wondering, what did she get out of treating children with such cruelty? Skyborn, Episode 10, Trojan Horse, by K.G. Lockrams. My application to the local community college was accepted. I qualified for financial aid and joined a work-study program in the college's computer lab. I saved enough money working at Kmart to buy my first used car, a six-year-old beige Honda Accord. It had its faults. After I had it for a month, the back of the driver's seat failed. It wouldn't stay up, and given I did not have abs of steel, I learned the seat back was an important part of a car. I hadn't turned in my geometry book at the end of the year, in protest, and wedged it between the back of the driver's seat back and the base of the back seat, and then added a pillow behind my back. Not great, but it worked until I eventually convinced the Honda dealer that sold it to me to repair it. 
I had my own wheels and another step toward freedom. Anytime I had a full tank of gas, I felt unstoppable. Dan didn't go away to college. He was working full-time with his father in a lithographic shop. Now that we both had cars, we could go wherever, whenever we liked. We'd take day trips to the beach, theme parks, see concerts, or just take long drives through the many country roads in the area. I began working in the computer lab at the college that summer in advance of the fall semester. The county I grew up in had many faults, but it was beautiful. Its history was largely agricultural, and there were many rolling hills, crop farms, and wooded areas. Driving to the college those summer mornings offered breathtaking views as the sun burned the mist off the fields and meadows. The lab was run by an Asian-American man around my father's age. Computer science was where I excelled, and working in the lab was a natural extension of my skill set. It was tame compared to Kmart. I didn't have to chase down anyone's children or clean up broken jars of pickled pig's feet. The assistant lab manager was a woman in her early 30s who was going through a divorce. She lived near me, and we'd occasionally carpool. We'd meet at her house, take her son to daycare, hit the local Dunkin' Donuts, and head to the campus for the day. There were two other aides, Ginger and Lance. Ginger was also in her 30s, and Lance was a year older than I. Ginger reminded me of a brunette, heavier-set Stevie Nicks, always dressed in flowing skirts with roach-clipped feathers and long hair. She was a hippie born about a decade too late. Lance was a year ahead of me in school, and something of a mystery. He rarely wore underarm deodorant and barely said three words in a day. When he did speak, he was incredibly funny. I went into that summer with a newfound sense of purpose and optimism. I had the best friend I'd ever had. I had a plan. I had a car. I got into college and secured the funds to make it happen. I felt as though I was finally in control of my life. Diane, who I dated briefly in ninth grade, became a very close friend of mine throughout the rest of high school. She'd always loved horses. She'd been riding for as long as I'd known her. The last time I rode a horse was with her in ninth grade. The county had an avid and long-established equestrian community and a dedicated horse track and fairgrounds, where Diane invited me to meet her one afternoon that summer after graduation. It was an absolutely beautiful day, and we walked the grounds among the crowds. I have to confess something to you, she said. What? I have a dual purpose for inviting you here. I want to introduce you to someone. She'd been dating this guy, Bill, since our junior year. I always felt he was abusive to her, more psychologically than physically as far as I knew. The guy was just a creep, and I hated seeing them together. She could do better. Hoping she had met someone new, I said, Please tell me you finally broke up with Bill. What? No! Bill and I haven't broken up. Why would you say that? And as I opened my mouth to explain, she cut me off. Let's not talk about Bill. We walked along in silence as she cleared my comments from her head. As I was saying, she began, I've noticed you haven't dated anyone since you and I split up, and I think you'll like this person. I was going to point out all the girls I'd taken to dances, but we both knew I hadn't dated any of them. Diane, really, I appreciate it, but you don't have to play matchmaker for me. Oh, there they are! I followed her gaze, but no one jumped out at me. Pip, over here! And from behind a small group of people, a man, several years older than us, waved and started walking toward us. Diane, what are you doing? Trusting a hunch. Pip arrived in front of us. Kit, Pip. Pip, Kit. He offered his hand and a warm, toothy smile. Hi, he said. Diane tells me we have a few things in common. I took his hand and shook it. 
It was strong and calloused. I went to let go, and he held it just a moment longer than I expected, then released me. I felt myself flush. I'll leave you two to it. Kit, find me in the stands when you're ready to go. And she melted into the crowd. Pip was very tan and clearly worked outside. He had straight brown hair with golden highlights from the sun. It was parted down the middle with just a bit of a feather on either side. He had brown eyes, a strong nose, and a spade-shaped chin. His direct eye contact was mesmerizing. He reminded me of a young Jim Neighbors. Although I didn't remember him from high school, he had graduated with my sister when I was a freshman. It's okay. I don't remember you either. I wasn't on campus much my senior year. I was doing work release. We walked around the fairgrounds and made small talk for about 15 minutes when he stopped and faced me. Here's my number. Call me sometime. He pulled a scrap of paper out of his right front pocket. He'd written his number on it before coming over. He held it out to me with his right hand. I reached for it with mine. As I was about to take the slip of paper from him, he placed his left hand on the back of mine, holding my outstretched hand still in midair, and then placed his number in the palm of my hand with his right. The gesture left him holding my hand in his, in broad daylight, surrounded by people. I was transfixed, staring at our hands. Then he cleared his throat, and I looked him in the eyes. Call me. I work at the fairgrounds, in the stables. I have access to them day or night. He paused, still holding my hand in his. I'd be happy to show you around some night. I couldn't move. He smiled, released my hand, and I took a deep breath, not realizing I'd stopped breathing since he touched me. And the moment was broken. Good to meet you, Pip. I'll give you a ring. And just as quickly as he appeared, he was gone. I called him the next day. I got his machine and left my number. After some back and forth, we connected and agreed on a time to meet. It was a beautiful, clear summer night, and after we wrapped up whatever it was we had met to do, he asked if I'd like to see the fairgrounds. It's beautiful in the starlight, and there's never anyone around. I'd love to show you. And I followed him in his Yugo for the 30-minute drive to the fairgrounds. The night was laced with the smell of wild honeysuckle, and my entire body was tingling. When we arrived at the gate to the grounds, he got out of his car and opened it. We drove through a low-cut field of grass that slowly climbed a small hill which overlooked the track. We parked and got out of our cars. He was right. It was beautiful. There wasn't a single cloud, just a half-moon, no light pollution, and a sky full of stars. We leaned on the hood of his car. He lit a cigarette, and we made small talk. My body temperature suddenly dropped, and I started shaking. Are you cold? he asked. I wasn't cold. It was anticipation. The same thing had happened that night with Dan at the ditch. Nervous, I answered. About what? You. He stood up. I followed suit. He turned and faced me. I did the same. He moved to within a few inches of my face. And why would I make you nervous? He asked and gave me a toothy grin. I could smell his cologne, Paul Sebastian, and his cigarette, Benson and Hedges. Well, and before I could finish the sentence, he placed his strong, calloused right hand on the nape of my neck and gently pulled me toward him. He tilted his head, closed the distance between us, and pressed his mouth to mine. As soon as his tongue entered my mouth, my entire body lit up. Every nerve felt electrified from his kiss, which was the perfect blend, 
of pressure, friction, and investigation. The nicotine on his tongue gave mine a little jolt. His cologne, the distant horses, the honeysuckle, the warm breeze. It could not have been a more perfect first kiss. I didn't move. The moment lasted both forever and only for an instant. He pulled back. I was rock hard, and my entire body was vibrating. I thought, so that's what a kiss is supposed to feel like. And in that moment, I knew I wanted that. More of that. All of that. And I said, I should be getting home. What the hell did I say? Stop talking. Did I do something wrong? He asked and looked concerned. God, no. That was amazing, I said. Thanks. Well, good for Diane. She wasn't sure, but I knew when I met you, he said. Knew what? That you were gay. I must have gotten a look on my face. Aren't you? I thought for a moment. I don't know. That's the first time I've ever kissed a guy. And? He asked, smiling. It was more than I expected. I've never felt anything like that with anyone else I've ever kissed. You're an excellent kisser, I said. Thanks. I'd like to do it again if you're interested. Oh, I'm interested. He leaned in again. Only this time, he went for my neck. Oh my god, what the hell is this? Again, my entire nervous system lit up. I was physically shaking. He pulled back and looked me in the eyes. You okay? Yes, I lied. I was unsteady on my feet. We parted company with a mutual understanding we'd meet again soon. On the drive home, I kept thinking, wow, on a loop. The smell of his cologne, his cigarettes, his hair, the feeling of him holding the nape of my neck in the palm of his hand. Just wow. I got home, went to bed, and immediately jerked off replaying the scene. I closed my eyes and drifted off to sleep, feeling both exhausted and exhilarated. Dan started seeing a girl, Kathy. I'd known Kathy since elementary school. She had a twin sister, Kim. Dan had met them in high school, and they lived just outside my development. Whenever they'd have a date on the weekend, I'd call Pip and see if he wanted to go out. We'd see a movie or go to a local comedy club he liked. You had to be 21 to enter, but he knew the bouncer and the owner, so they let me in. He ordered a white Russian. The waitress set it down and retreated. Do you want one? he asked. I'm only 18. Oh, right. I forgot. He slid his drink to me and ordered another. Evidently, in the mid-1980s, comedy clubs were where to go if you wanted to drink under age. For our third date, he invited me to his place. He had a space in an old farmhouse not far from the fairgrounds. It was off Providence Road. I found that symbolic at the time and used to think, Providence led me to you. I arrived, and hanging out quickly turned into making out. He unbuttoned his shirt to his navel. He had the most beautiful chest hair I'd ever seen. His body was lean and strong from the stable work. Take off your shirt, he said. I did. I was pale, completely smooth, and not at all well-muscled. I was having sensory overload by everything going on and didn't even have the space to feel self-conscious. I'd finally found myself in a consensual sexual experience that also seemed to have mutual emotional desire. I'd yearned for this for years. His every touch, smell, and movement were completely new to me and absolutely welcome. Other than oral sex, I knew nothing about making love, which for me was exactly what was about to happen. 
At one point, he lay on top of me as he reached for his dresser. When he righted himself, he was holding a condom, a Trojan. Are you up for this? He asked. How do you mean? Can I fuck you? I don't think I'm ready for that. Can we just keep doing what we're doing? He looked disappointed, but said, when you're ready, and tossed the condom toward the dresser and began kissing me again, which turned into kissing me all over, which turned into oral sex. And I happily repeated the entire experience for him. At the end, we were laying side by side in bed. He lit up a Benson and Hedges. Do you mind, he said, exhaling his first drag. Not at all. I hated the smell of cigarettes. In middle school, a friend and I had once gotten a stranger to buy us a carton of Marlboro Reds at the convenience store just outside the neighborhood. We went to the ditch and dared each other to see who could smoke the most cigarettes the fastest. In rapid succession, we each smoked three cigarettes. Halfway through the second, I had a splitting headache. At the end of the third, I threw up. That was the last time I ever tried to smoke, and aside from my grandmother's cigarettes, I couldn't stand the smell. But with Pip, Whenever I'd smell his Benson and Hedges, I had complete sensory recall of how it felt on my tongue that first time he kissed me and would be instantly aroused. I lay with my head in the crook of his arm, and we absentmindedly stroked each other. Being absolutely smooth myself, I was fascinated by his chest and body hair. I caught myself repeatedly falling asleep and jolting back to consciousness. This was absolutely perfect, I said. But it's time I... Shit, it's 4 a.m.? I gotta get going. What, do you have a curfew? No, I, I just don't want my mother to worry. And I got dressed, kissed him goodnight, and left. I got up the next morning and went into the kitchen where she was having coffee. Morning. You were out late, she observed. I poured myself a glass of orange juice. What happened to your face, she asked. What? I went into the bathroom and looked in the mirror, and learned for the first time what a beard burn was. His stubble had rubbed the entire area around my mouth raw. I also had a hickey, which thankfully she had not seen. As Dan and Kathy increased the amount of time they were spending together, so did Pip and I. It killed me not being able to talk to Dan about what I was experiencing. Pip and I had gotten together one afternoon, and then I met Dan to see a movie. As I walked up to him, he got this odd look on his face and said, That's funny. Sometimes Kathy looks just like that after we've been making out. I put my hand over my mouth and could feel my skin was warm. That is funny, I said. Having no facial hair myself, I did not know that this was a thing, and there was no way to hide it. There was also no way I was going to stop making out with Pip. Each time I met Pip at his place, at some point during sex, the condom would come out and he'd ask, Are you ready? Or some variation of that. Anal sex was taboo and a bridge too far for me. I, I don't think I'll ever be ready for that. And as soon as the words left my mouth, his energy level shifted, and he cut the evening short. I've got to be at the stables at dawn tomorrow, so I'm going to have to say goodnight. And he sent me home. I didn't think much of it in the moment. It was a reasonable request. But when I called him the next time, it took him days to call me back. When I got his message, I immediately called him back and got his machine. And then it was four days until he called me back. And after my third callback, there was no return call from him. My sister had stayed near the university that summer. There was no family trip to see my grandmother that year, and instead our mother went by herself and left me home alone. My sister invited me up one night. I got to hang out with her friends, and we all scaled the fence of the grounds of a golf course that had a pond or a pool, I forget which. 
We all went swimming. It was the first time since we'd gone caroling as children that she and I had done anything together. You know, you're actually kind of fun to hang out with, she said afterwards. Thanks. It's been a long time since you've asked me to do anything with you. You were always so embarrassing, she teased. Do you remember when we went and saw foul play and you yelled at Goldie Hawn's character for throwing the cigarettes into the fire? Vaguely, I replied and shouted, Don't! The microfilm's in there! And we laughed. I went home the next day and checked the messages on the machine. Pip had called and left a message. I called him back immediately, aroused at simply having heard his voice. I figured I'd get the machine, but he actually picked up. How have you been? he asked. Good. I didn't say anything about being disappointed that he hadn't returned my last call. I didn't know how any of this worked. I just got back from seeing my sister. She's staying near campus this summer. My mom is out of town till tomorrow, and I had to come back to take care of the cat. So you've got the place to yourself? I do. Do you want some company? Sure. Would you like to come over? How's eight o'clock? I told him that was fine and gave him directions. Then I spent the rest of the afternoon cleaning up my room and the common spaces of the house. I went out and got some snacks and soda and took a shower. I was so excited. He showed up on time, and when I opened the door, he came in, carrying liquor and mixers. What's all this? Kitchen up there? He asked. I nodded. He brushed by me and went up to the kitchen and started unloading the bags. I thought it would be nice to have drinks, so I brought supplies since you can't buy liquor. I figure Mother probably knows the levels on whatever she has. My memory is fractured from that moment on. I remember sitting in the living room talking. I remember him suggesting I close the living room drapes and the mini blinds in the kitchen in my bedroom. I didn't think anything of it. It just seemed like common sense, so no one could see us if we started making out. I remember sitting at the kitchen table together. No matter how much I drank, my glass was never empty. If I looked the other way or went to the bathroom, my glass would be full again. The evening went something like this. Come on, Pip, I'm plastered and you're barely drinking, I said. I have to drive later. You don't. I thought it would be fun to get you properly drunk. There was a Sony CD player in the kitchen. It was on the buffet cab that my mother's parents had bought for my parents as a wedding present. It was the piece of furniture my parents used for the record player that I used to listen to as a child. I was playing Peter Gabriel's album, So, on a loop, both because I was too drunk to care to change it, and I absolutely loved the album. Dan and I were going to see him on tour in the fall. I have to pee, I said, and stumbled to the bathroom. The bathroom was just behind the CD player, and I heard the music stop. Do you mind if I put something else in? He called out. When I came out of the bathroom, my bedroom was to my right and the kitchen to my left. He turned my bedroom light on and was blocking the entrance to the kitchen. He put Prince and the Revolution in the player, and the song Kiss was just beginning to play. Well, he said. What? I replied, swaying a bit in the hallway. Should we kiss? Absolutely. Finish your drink first. And he handed me another full glass. I, I can't drink all that, I said. Do your best and he smiled. I took a big swallow, reached into the bathroom, and put the glass on the vanity. Whatever we do, I need to lay down, I said. Let's get you in bed. In short flashes, I see, we're in bed. We're naked. We're making out. He says, roll on your stomach. I comply. My face is occluded by my pillow, and it's hard to breathe. I managed to get my forearms under my chest and try to lift myself up. 
His hand is on my spine between my shoulders, palm down, and he is pushing me into the mattress. Let me up. I can't breathe. You're okay. His hips are on my ass. I can feel his erection on my buttocks. He moves his right leg up, inserts his knee behind mine, and spreads my leg. What are you doing? I'm giving you what you need. And in that moment, I know he is going to fuck me. Pip, no. I hear him spit in his hand, and he slides his hand between my butt cheeks. I hear him spit again, and assume he uses it on a shaft. No, I don't want this. His breath is hot against my ear. Trust me, you'll like it. He repositions himself. Now both his hands are squarely on my spine between my shoulder blades. Stop! He uses my torso to push himself up into the position he wants, which pins me down and buries my face further in my pillow. And now he's inside me. And I am not. I am floating above the bed, near my closet door, watching, as he rapes me. The next thing I can remember is, I am alone. I am in pain. I am drunk. I am incapacitated. And I am crying. Then nothing. The rest of that summer is a blank. Epilogue Until this podcast, I've never told this story in sequence in its entirety. I've talked about the beauty of my first male-on-male kiss, and I've talked about having been date-raped, but always as two separate events, one that I cherish and one that used to haunt me. I've never told them as a cohesive experience carried out by the same man. I'm not sure if it's that I didn't want to or wasn't able to, but I am now. Having my last girlfriend introduce me to my first boyfriend was a great story, and I focused on that story to the exclusion of the rape. Meeting Pip and our first kiss that night under the stars was the second transformative experience of my life. It was equal to being skyborne with my father in a single-engine airplane and realizing that above gray clouds are blue skies. I didn't want anyone to take that away from me, not even the man who gave it to me, especially the man who gave it to me. Pip's first kiss made me realize there was something beyond all the pain and sorrow and hiding that had been my life. There was pleasure, joy, and fireworks. My sheer gratitude and wonder at having had my first kiss with a man. To have shared a consensual and emotionally bonded sexual experience with someone I was attracted to, who was equally attracted to me. I felt seen. I felt whole. And then he took all that away from me. And I felt used stupid and naive and broken. I couldn't reconcile the two experiences, so I kept them segregated. I was 18 years old. I trusted someone who, in the end, had one agenda. To fuck me. I can't remember in much detail the agony of the aftermath, and for that, I'm grateful. AIDS kills fags dead. Had he used a condom? I didn't know. Was there evidence of one? I couldn't remember. I don't see how he could have both pinned me down and opened a condom wrapper one-handed. I've never been able to open a condom one-handed. When I push too hard to look for the memories, I start to get a headache. When I wrote this, I couldn't remember the year it happened. 
Like my brother's abuse when he put me out to his friends, I'd made myself older. But when I reverse engineered the timeline, the age I thought I was didn't work. The people in my life were different at that age. I was no longer sleeping in the room where it happened. My mother wasn't away that summer. My sister had graduated college by then. As I excavated my life, I found a hole in my memory the summer after I graduated from high school. Based on how my dissociation works, that blank spot was my smoking gun. My sister was in the right place. My mother was in the right place. The people in my life were in the right place. And that was the bedroom I slept in. The fractured, disorganized, and missing memory is one of the hardest things to reconcile in severe trauma. If you're gay, you will die of AIDS. At the time, one had to wait six months before getting an AIDS test. Can you imagine? Any sooner and it could result in a false negative. The test had barely been released. When the time came, I had to drive over 60 miles to a metropolitan area health clinic that specifically served the gay community to even receive it. Thankfully, it was free and anonymous. For six months, I lived in fear that not only had Pip raped me, but had given me a death sentence. The ignorance and fear around AIDS at the time was palpable. Who could I have told? My mother? Dan? I literally had no one to talk to. My local police department wouldn't have even known what to do about it. Hell, it didn't even meet the legal definition of rape. At the time, the U.S. strictly defined a rape as a forcible penetration of a woman's vagina by a man's penis. Nothing else. Solely between a man and a woman. Solely between a penis and a vagina. The definition wasn't broadened until 2012, 26 years after my rape. Had I called the police, I would most likely have been harassed for the homosexual nature of the experience, as well as for drinking underage. The reality was, I still didn't know if I was gay. As beautiful as that first kiss with him had been, I still didn't want to be gay. I remained silent and carried the burden of it alone. Society has a bizarre and circuitous take on rape. I know of people who have told date rape survivors that it wasn't as bad as so-and-so. They were raped at gunpoint by a stranger. As if to say, get over it, or buck up. Rape is not a competition. Trauma is not pie. There's plenty of suffering for all humanity. If your empathy is somehow tied to someone's level of suffering, you may want to explore that. The simple reality is, no means no. No one should be forced to have sex. Not from someone you don't know, not from a family member when you're a child, and not from someone you're dating, who you told no as they were in the act of raping you. Someone will always have had it worse, but everyone could have it better. <laughs>